Welcome to Navigate, the podcast that helps you safely and securely traverse the globe. Alongside travel industry experts and global travelers, we'll gather insights and advice that help you manage any pitfalls or problems that may occur while you're away from home. Our voyage of discovery starts now. Hello, and thank you for joining us on the first episode of Navigate. I'm your host, Roger Cook, the Regional Security Director for World Travel Protection. Today, I'm joined by Jim G from Crow UK, and we're going to talk about the potential increase of fraud-related activity due to the COVID-19 pandemic. As we start to see an easing of travel restrictions and the talk of travel bubbles in Europe and the Pacific, what challenges will business face as they try to return to business as usual? Jim, it's great to have you here, and uh, thank you for your time. It's good to be here, and um, looking forward to this. Can you just tell us a bit about your background and the, and the work that you're doing uh, with Crow UK? Well, I've been uh, working in this area dealing with fraud, cybercrime, bribery, corruption now for uh, more than 30 years. Um, I was chief executive of the NHS Counter-Fraud Service, protecting the second largest organisation in the world against those issues, advisor to the UK Attorney General, and then joined private practice and have since advised governments, companies, big charities all over the world in 43 countries to date. What can we expect to see in relation to fraud um, stemming from the global economic downturn caused by COVID-19? Well, Crow Crow UK managed the largest database in the world concerning the cost of fraud. Um, Based on global research over more than two decades across 40 sectors and looking at more than 19 trillion uh, sterling of expenditure in different countries, we know that in normal times, over 7% of expenditure is lost to fraud and error. But we now have a big increase in fraud as criminals try to exploit the current COVID-19 health and economic emergency. So there's kind of three aspects to this. First of all, there's the COVID-19 specific fraud, which affects us all as individuals. Then there's an increase in general fraud affecting companies and other non-public sector organisations. And the third element is fraud in respect of um, different governments' um, COVID-19 support measures. Uh, extra loans, extra grants, uh, more generous arrangements in terms of employment that several countries have put in place. So to give you some examples, um, the COVID-19 specific fraud includes examples where fraudsters have pretended to be undertaking research for the World Health Organization. Uh, Mm -hmm. They claim to provide the victim with a list of active infections in their area, but to access this, of course, the victim needs to either click on a link which needs uh, to click on a link which redirects them to a credential stealing web page. Um, there's been emails asking for donations to buy medical preparations and supplies. Um, other scams purporting to be official messages from governments include texts telling people they've been fined for leaving their home during the, the lockdown and asking them to pay that. Um, there's been fraudsters uh, sending investment scheme and trading advice, encouraging people to take advantage of the downturn. And even um, emails purporting to come from different tax authorities offering tax refunds. So lots of COVID-specific stuff. There's been people offering PPE, uh, which, of course, never arrives. Um, So that's the kind of COVID fraud. But the second element is the kind of economic crisis-driven fraud. So we've seen employees who have either been made redundant already or think that they will be stealing client data and intellectual property to ingratiate themselves with respective future employers. Uh, we've seen fraudulent invoices submitted 
by under pressure services and services which either were never ordered in the first place or have never been delivered. Senior managers, unbeknown to their employers, under financial pressure. Um, one example I can think of where a very senior guy had a, a, a bad gambling habit, which nobody knew about. But people like that have been using their authority to manipulate accounts and misdirect money. Mm-hmm. And we've also seen lots of um, attempted and sadly some successful changes in bank account details to misdirect money. And then the third element is fraud in respect of government COVID-19 support measures. So in some countries, the government is um, paying part of the wages for staff. And of course, companies claim for non-existent staff or uh, pretend to furlough them when they're not. Um, Companies purporting to be solvent to get government back loans and grants and then transferring the money out to other companies and letting the original company go bankrupt. Uh, We've seen organized criminals and individuals um, fraudulently claiming um, some of those grants as well. And indeed, alongside that, the organized criminals, because their um, kind of uh, manufacturing and distribution arrangements for drugs have been disrupted by this, they've been pouring more resources into cybercrime as well. So um, three areas, um, the risks to organizations, both internal and external, possible economic pressures lead people to radically reevaluate loyalties and sometimes to rationalize behavior which normally they wouldn't consider appropriate. Um, previous recessions have seen a, a new generation of fraudsters created where the normal dishonest minority, and there always is one, is enlarged by those determined to protect their income and assets no matter what. So I hope that gives you a bit of a, a flavor of um, what we've seen and what we're likely to see more. But as travel does open up, I expect it's going to be the business travellers that will be at the forefront um, as they as they try to get back into the, their work environments, um, either expats or, or rotational staff. What what risk are these travellers going to be exposed to in relation to fraud, but also you know government related corruption? Yeah, well, risks always develop during periods of economic uncertainty because there's more unemployment, more instability, more crime. And particularly if you're you're traveling to countries where the level of risk is higher than it would be perhaps in a in the developed world. Um, I do uh, quite a bit of work in, in Mali, which is unstable at the best of times. Um, but uh, in the midst of the COVID crisis and not just the health crisis, but the economic crisis, of course, that's going to get worse. I think business travelers need to consider a number of things. They need to be serious about considering their physical security, and I don't think they always are. Um, And that doesn't just mean having physical security around you, if that's appropriate, but it means actually understanding more about where exactly you're going, what what part of what country, and actually having um, a proper, uh, some proper uh, due diligence threat intelligence beforehand, so you understand that. Um, I think there's a question of digital security, which is very important. Um, and people don't always think about, about that, um, especially in a time where we're seeing a massive spike in cybercrime. Um, so, for example, we provide specially configured laptops, hardware and software to minimise uh, the possibility of, of cybercrime. We can remotely configure laptops. Uh, we give people training about that. Um, we provide the most secure encrypted mobile phones for people and the training to make sure that any eavesdropping um, and governments will ramp up in some of these countries, they will ramp up 
that kind of e- eavesdropping to ensure it isn't a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, anti-surveillance security, uh, making sure that people sweep the space around them or maybe the uh, room in which a, a crucial business meeting is going to take place. Um, and again, where you have countries with intrusive governments, that's useful. Um, and even things like um, cell-based mobile phone tracking. So mm-hmm. we can identify the mobile phone cells surrounding a particular business location and then track the mobile phone numbers moving towards or away from that location to identify unwanted intrusion. So there's a series of things that technology wouldn't have allowed, wouldn't have um, wouldn't been possible with technology a few years ago. Um, but this is um, this is really what people need to minimise the risks in this day and age. Um, and those risks will get worse as the crisis uh, develops. I think as we move forward and travel into these environments. We may have to download technology that the the the, the host country um, requires for us. Do you, do, you, do you see a risk with that? Yes, um, very much so. I mean, in some countries where governments are more intrusive, that's particularly the case. Um, there are um, all sorts of measures which you can put in place. Um, conditional access is one of them, um, and you can set that um, via uh, Microsoft Office three six five. Um, on your computer. So, for example, if you're trying to do something logging in from, let's say, Indonesia, then um, your computer would automatically uh, not allow you to do some things which it would be perfectly possible to do if you were logging in in Australia. So there's, there's some quite detailed things you can do to tune the level of protection to the place that you're going to. You, you talked about um, you know, equipping travellers with, you know, specialist laptops or specially configured laptops and, and phones. Uh, what else can we do to, to protect our travellers and arm them and make them more resilient when they travel to these environments? Well, I think awareness is key, um, mm. and, and that's, that's about training people. Um, you know, so, sometimes people can be uh, in unfamiliar environment. They don't, don't really understand. Um, you know, we provide detailed threat intelligence reports on what's actually going on inside a, com- a country and provide people with uh, training and awareness sessions as well if they need it. There is no substitute for really understanding where you're going, what the issues there, what the risks are, and those risks will vary as well in different parts of the country. So um, there are parts of the UK uh, that I wouldn't go into uh, too late at night, um, and the UK is a developed country where overall the risk is low. Mm. But it's, it's about understanding exactly where you're going and what the risks are and then behaving, protecting yourself proportionately. Do, do you find, Jim, that um, when, when, when there has been a fraud event you know, and, and travellers are reluctant to report it or businesses are reluctant to give it the, the focus that it needs? Yes, uh, indeed. Um, you know, the, the statistics on this are quite interesting. Going back more than 20 years, and as I said, we manage the biggest database in the world around mm. extent of fraud. When you compare that to what's detected, as little as one thirtieth is actually detected. Um, the low volume, high value frauds are noticed and are mm-hmm. detected. And then there's a question of the extent to which people think it's going to be useful to them to report it to the authorities. In some countries, the authorities actually have very different priorities from looking at fraud. For example, in the UK, and again, a developed country, 
only 0.6% of all fraud in my country is actually prosecuted. And that's partly because people don't report it to the police. And the yes. reason they don't report it to the police is because the police don't actually put much effort into doing anything uh, about it. So, um, you know, when it's 1.30th is detected, most of that 29.30ths is high volume, low value fraud. It's the kind of thing that, okay, a certain amount of money has been taken, but then in people's minds, they think, is it really worth, you know, getting involved with the authorities in another country? What if I was misunderstood? What if mm -hmm. I was thought somehow to blame? Um, so people are reluctant to, to report it unless it's something which is relatively high value and they have a degree of confidence in the authorities in the country concerned. And, and that's a key piece, isn't it? As a traveller, you don't really understand what the authorities may do with that information. You don't know their level of complicity in, in the, the actual fraud. So there's a hesitance. I guess it's, it goes back to that being informed. That's right. I mean, in, in some countries, you know, the corruption within the police is almost institutionalised mm. with a tariff for people to actually purchase different positions uh, and, you know, getting together money from their families to be able to purchase a position in the police. And then, of course, they have to take bribes to pay off the money that they borrowed. So it's almost institutionalised. Um, and, uh, you know, people need to be aware of that. And that's another risk they face. Absolutely. Is, is there a reluctance to follow up on fraud and, and, and seek these convictions because the money's been seen to be taken, you know, from a you know, might be a multinational or a large company, and there's a, there's a belief that you know they can they can wear the cost, or they, you know, it doesn't really matter because they're you know they're, they could be a foreign entity or they're, they're just a large company. Is there some of the thinking there behind that? Yeah, this is the myth of the victimless crime, isn't it? Hmm. Uh it, it isn't victimless. People see, let's say, a uh, high volume, low value fraud. They think, well, the company can afford to absorb this. They're not aware of is the rest of that high volume. Yeah. Collectively, all of that uh, loss is substantial. Um, where fraud has been measured in a, a accurate and statistically valid way, and we run the biggest database in the world on this then it's currently running at 7.15% of expenditure mm. and that cut by up to 40% within 12 months. So you think the level of profitability of different companies, 40% of 7% is about just under 3%. Adding 3% to your profitability by cutting the costs, um, that, that doesn't actually cause any hardship whatsoever. In fact, um, the only people that lose out from it are the fraudsters. Um, is, is something you can make your, your, your company more profitable. So, um, yeah, that, that's what I think. Being more profitable at this, this current time is going to be you know, critical and 3% could mean the difference between you know, surviving or not. Yes. It, it sort of leads me into the next question. You, what, what are the risks of not travelling? Now, I know, you know some of the organisations that I've worked with recently you know, they're, they're quite happy to trust that their supply chain uh, was able to deliver, but from the comfort of Australia in this instance. You know, what happens if we don't travel? What happens to the, the, our, our, you know, the, the, our ability to manage fraud in that instance? Well, there's all sorts of things that people um, can't do unless you do travel. You've touched on one of them, supply chain integrity. Mm. Uh, we're finding a, a big problem in Europe in one sector which really – at the moment um, with, with COVID-19 that really is an example of that. And that's the food sector. Um, people um, actually 
not doing the due diligence, not making the visits to where some of that food is grown or produced. And it's supposedly coming from, from one place uh, where conditions perhaps are acceptable to, to produce it or grow it. And in fact, coming from somewhere completely different. And we call, we call food fraud as the crime in your basket. But um, you know, that's just one example of, of a lack of supply chain in integrity. When you start looking at supply chains, and we do that for various companies because they want to know ultimately where whatever is made or produced comes from, then you can find those supply chains are actually very long. But there's other problems too. So um, if, if you don't travel to meet people, sometimes you won't win or be able to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you won't be able to scrutinize prospective business partners as well as you would otherwise be able to do. There is no substitute for actually meeting people and a video call just isn't quite the same. Um, You won't be able to see where something is grown or made or mined. Um, You won't be able to understand the context of um, where the work is taking place or to understand the culture of a country as well, which can be really important to um, doing business effectively. And finally, you won't be able to network as well. You know, good, close links between people are very important to good business. Being able to trust people is very important to be able to be able to do good business. And I think that um, that lag between you know, by not traveling and not acquiring new business will have a, a long term impact on a lot of organizations. Yeah, I mean, the, the first people to get out there and start doing business again will thrive in a very difficult context. Um, I've worked in 43 countries to date, and I don't just sit in London while I send my team out there. I actually go out there because I want to meet the people. Um, I want to see for myself what needs to be done. I want to make sure the work is done really well. And I think that's been important to the success I've had in, in building my practice. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's important to understand the culture that you're working in. You talked about the um, the the food um, fraud, and really that that substitution of of one known product with another you know, is something that we we're going, we could see a lot. We could see that in consumables. We could see it in in vehicle parts. And I've, I've been involved with yourself managing a a fraud around those um, sorts of pieces of equipment. Is is there anything else that you can think that might be and susceptible to that sort of fraud? Well, certainly um, vehicle parts, food, pretty much anything that um, that people seek to acquire through their supply chain. You know, you, you want to know that um, if it's, let's say it's, um, you want to know it's been, it's been made properly. You want to know who has made it, that it's been made by people actually being treated properly and fairly. Um, we have an act in the UK called the Modern Slavery Act. Mm-hmm. Um, which outlaws people effectively being kept prisoner to to undertake work. Um, so our companies actually look at long supply chains to check that you know ultimately where something is originally produced um, that that isn't the case. Mm. Um, and when you start looking at that, you can you can just see it, it covers an awful lot of different areas. Even even one area that we've looked at is um, wine. Um, and actually checking whether some of the um, some of the wine that supposedly comes from uh, very expensive domains in in France, whether that is in fact the case, and uh, even in that area, that's not always the case. So there's um, a wide variety of supply chains that uh, go wrong if they're not actually scrutinised and people are not actually going out and having a look at them. 
actually hand in hand with that, I think we're going to see, or there is already a lot of talk around about people changing their supply chains, probably moving things, either supply or manufacturing out of China into other areas. If, if I was an organisation and I was thinking about moving what, you know, a well-established supply chain or manufacturing facility in China to a different part of the world, what, what sort of things should I consider there? There's, there is no substitute for getting really good quality business intelligence about the people you're going to be meeting, the people you're going to be working with and the country you're going to be working in. Jim, again, thank you very much for your time. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about with regards to fraud and, and, the, and the business traveller or the new environment we find ourselves in with regards to COVID-19? Well, all I would say is um, it, it's absolutely crucially important. We've we've got our crisis. I don't want our crisis to be the fraudsters and cyber criminals opportunity. Excellent, Jim. Thanks very much for your time. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks for interviewing me. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Navigate the World Travel Protection Podcast that steers you in the right direction, helping you explore the world safely. For more information on how we protect millions of global travellers each year, visit worldtravelprotection.com or follow us on LinkedIn. We'd love to connect. Finally, if you've enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more from my experts, be sure to hit subscribe or follow or please leave us a review. Until next time, keep travelling and stay safe.